Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. I, I, look, I really hate to do this to you guys. Heidi, Heidi was probably a little bit nicer than I'm going to be. Um, I, we just came out of a Salo weekend. We haven't seen each other in church for two weeks, you know. So, so sorry to interrupt your reunions, but I haven't preached in like seven or eight months, so let's go. We better get started now. <laughs> we better get started now. Um, man, I'm so thankful that you all are here. And we're going to continue our series in David. We're going to look at David, the psalmist, today. Um, and I am going to take advantage of this opportunity quite shamelessly as your worship pastor. Hold on, Ike. Well, lost pick there, big guy. Thank you. <clears throat> I am going to talk about worship today. Um, and it may, may, might seem self-serving uh, for some of you, but uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit invades your heart in a way that I definitely could not. Okay, we, we don't, I, I, wasn't worship just amazing today? Okay, we don't do that at this church because I want to. I mean, that is part of it. But we do it simply because we're musical beings. And we're musical beings because we were created in God's image and God is a musical being. Zephaniah 3.17 says in the NLT, he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. God sings over us. The ESV is my favorite personally. It says, he will exult over you with loud singing. Okay, so loud worship isn't my idea. It's not Dave Little's idea. It's God's idea. Okay, how many know that the one that spoke, literally spoke galaxies into existence more than we even know, can even comprehend? He spoke galaxies into existence. How in the world is he going to be drowned out by a couple of speakers and subs? Come on. Now, let's take modern worship music out of it for a second. Imagine you're a devout Jew and you go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and you start to pray, usually the Psalms of David. Um, and if you notice, if you've ever seen this before, they rock back and forth as they pray. That's music. Now, I know there's no music playing, but it's a musical concept. When you add rhythm to lyrics, it makes the lyrics easier to memorize and remember. But God doesn't really care too much about the lyrics or the music or how loud it is. I mean, he does, but he does, he's not impressed by those things because he created them. What he's looking for is faith rising up in the hearts and coming out the mouths of his children as they sing to him or sing about him. It's faith. It's, it's a heart that's turned towards heaven that gets heaven's attention. And that, that's why we focus so much on the heart of David here at this church. So today I want to do two things. I want to, one, take your view of worship and just make it really big, like much bigger than it is right now. And I want to take your view of this book and make it bigger. This, I want you to see and I want you to get a new appreciation for just how rich this text is. I want you to thank God for it. And I want to inspire you to start to study it, not just read it. And we say, you know, it's great to read it. Sometimes you have 10 minutes and all you can do is read and be encouraged. 
But you need to start to find time to study it, to wrestle with the text, because there's so much in here that it takes more than just a read-through to find, okay? Now, when we, um, when we talk about biblical heroes, especially David, we need to be careful because most of us aren't willing to admit this, I think. If we are, maybe it's just a subconscious thing, but um, D- David's, here, uh, David's a hero in the Bible, right? But, and his failures are well-documented. They're these massive, in, in our human scoring system, they're massive failures, Okay. And even though that's the case and you don't have something plastered on a book for all of human history for people to read about your failures, we, we still feel differently about David. Like David's still up here compared to us, right? Because, well, he's in the Bible and I'm not. And he wrote a part of the Bible and I didn't, okay? The problem with that perspective is David didn't know he was a biblical hero, because David didn't know he was going to be in the Bible. Okay, there was not, I, I know this might be hard for you to believe if I'm crushing your dreams right now, I'm sorry, but there was not a scribe walking next to him the whole time being like, you know, David, First Samuel chapter 16, here we go. He didn't know. He knew he was doing significant things. God was speaking to him. There's no doubt about that, but God speaks to you. Okay? He did not know he was a biblical hero. He didn't know he was writing the Bible. He did not sit down with his notebook and be, okay, the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. He just was writing. Okay, we don't even know if we got the order right. Okay? The, the, the book of Psalms is a compilation that took hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, to, to come together. And how do I know that? Psalm 7220, it's one of the most obscure passages in the Bible. You've probably never read it. It says, now the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Check your Bible. There's 150 Psalms. And in Psalm 72, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Keep reading after Psalm 72, and you will find more Psalms of David, which tells you that at one point in our history, there were only 72 Psalms. And so they were done. And then they found some more after that. They said, Well, we better keep going. There's good stuff in here. We've got to keep adding some more. Okay? This is not rocket science. The Bible is the Bible, and the way it came together is super nerdy, honestly, and if you want to talk more about it, we can talk more about it, Um, but that's not why we're here today, okay? Here's my point. David did not receive more of God's image than you. David did not receive more of God's spirit than you, and so you don't have to be David to pursue and possess the heart of David, okay? Or Deal? Okay, so now that we've evened the playing field with one of the greatest humans that's ever lived, Let's look at his psalms. We're only going to get through two today. I really wanted to get to four, but I'll have to save it. It's a like, three-hour message at that point. So I already reserve a spot for the next series on psalms or David or whatever. But um, when you read the psalms, especially the ones that are about tough situations in David's life, you'll see like brutal honesty. I love that about David. Um, I, I can sometimes be too honest um, I was actually told that by my boss a few weeks ago in a one-on-one. Uh, something I need to work on with my coworkers. Um, yeah. So, brutal honesty, right? Um, and you'll also see some very brutal imagery. And what sticks out to me is that it was okay to talk to God this way. It was, in fact, it was so okay that God in his wisdom and sovereignty decided that this 
extreme language would be preserved throughout human history for us to read and benefit from today. Okay, so, and I'm asking God, okay, when I'm studying this, God, why? Okay, I, I hear you, I understand that point, I should tell the people about that, but why? And he said to me, you're afraid to tell me how you really feel sometimes. Think about it. We are so afraid to tell God how we really feel. As if he doesn't already know. As if he doesn't know that there's probably curse words <laughs> that you're applying to that situation. As if he doesn't know just how badly you're hurting. And we say, God, you know, I'm, I'm just not having the greatest day. I'm struggling. Struggling is such an overused word. It's not strong enough most of the time. Okay, a cancer diagnosis is so shocking to us, isn't it? Especially if you catch it early on. Why is that? Because nothing is wrong on the outside and everything is wrong on the inside. And David didn't pray like that. David didn't write like that. He wrote like a warrior. He wrote like someone who was in battle. He wrote like he had lacerations and broken limbs and concussions. And dare I say, we should probably take a note from David and start talking to God that way. So our first example of this is Psalm 3. Okay, let's look at Psalm 3. Turn in your Bibles, turn in your apps, whatever method of biblical study you're going to use today. We're going to look at Psalm 3. David wrote this when he was, later in his life, his son Absalom was trying to steal the kingdom away from him. In fact, he succeeded in doing so for a time. So he's betrayed by his own son. Okay, let's look at this psalm. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Think about how intimate that is, lifting someone's head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth. You bust the faces of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. We just sang that. Okay, so people were saying crazy things about David. The enemy was saying crazy things to David. The man after God's own heart, the greatest king that the people of Israel would ever have. They didn't know it at the time, but it was downhill from there. The greatest king that, people, that the people of Israel would ever have. There's, they're saying there's no hope for him. There's no way out. God has abandoned him. First off, how arrogant of them to play God and say that, and somehow know that God had abandoned David. Second of all, isn't that like maybe one of the most common lies the enemy tells you every day? There's no way out for you. You're never going to get through that sin issue. Your kids are never going to obey you again. You'll never get through that financial situation. Your marriage is on the rocks and it's only going to be crushed. It'll never be redeemed. So David, a man after God's own heart, was struggling with the exact same lies from the enemy that you do. Now, Notice the timing of the sailors, especially the first one, right? 
this is what they're saying about me. This is, this is what I'm thinking. I'm starting to struggle with this lie, God. I, this is what the enemy's saying to me. I'm not sure. Selah, pause, reflect. Is this true, God? Is it really true that you've left me? God, what would, what would you say? God, what would you say? You, O Lord, are a shield about me. Salvation belongs to you. You see, when we bring our petitions to the Lord this way, just get it all out, just get all the lies out, get all the, well, I guess, honestly, all the truth out, all those lies the enemy is telling you you're struggling with, just get it all out on the table for the Lord to see. And when you start to approach the correct God, Okay, the one that's seated high on a throne in front of a sea of glass, totally peaceful, not concerned, not worried about your situation at all, terribly in love with you, but not worried about your situation at all because he's 1,000 million billion percent in control. And you say, God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. God, what, what, would you, uh, what do you have for me? And he's, I'm a shield about you. Salvation belongs to me. Salvation does not belong to the people in that situation down here. Salvation belongs to the one seated on the throne way up here. Okay? This is how we should approach God. And it might not fix itself in two verses. Okay? But this is how we should approach God. Now, I want to camp on this idea of Selah for a little bit because we just came out of one. Okay, we've been preaching this rhythm as a church body since day one. For those of you that weren't around in the very beginning, we've been having Selah Weekend since the very beginning. And I'm very thankful for them. My, my wife is very thankful for them. Okay, and we've always taught you that it means to pause and reflect. And that is 100% true. But it's not the entire definition of the word. Okay, because if you look at Psalm 3, is actually a song that can be sung Corporately, there are many psalms that have these notes that say to, to be sung to some certain tune or melody. So, but you see the word Selah in it. So clearly it has some musical connotation to it. Okay, think about it. You can't be like singing the blessing and then after verse 2 be like, Selah, okay, come back in two weeks, we'll finish the song. You know. And also, would it be, maybe it's just me being a modern worship musician, but like, if you're in the middle of the song and you pause and reflect, as in you go to silence for like five, ten minutes, that would just like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like I have a feeling that even music back then, they didn't just do stuff like that. Because you would just totally kill the vibe, right? And then you'd hear people sneezing and babies crying. And then it's like you can't, like, okay? So it must mean something else. Well, here's what it really means. It means pause and reflect, but it also means to give musical interpretation to what was just said. So pause and reflect, and when you're done reflecting, play what it sounds like when the Lord is a shield about me. Play what it feels like when he lifts my head or when he answers from his holy hill. Okay, so... The NLT, if you look in your NLTs, I don't know if every NLT is like this, but I actually haven't checked my own. Um, okay, so mine still uses the word Selah. Actually, this is ESV, no wonder. Uh, I'm all over the place today. 
So the NLT, some NLTs, I've seen this, not, maybe not all of them, but some do not use the word sela, they use the word interlude, which is, one, is only a musical term. It's not used in any other context. So what does this mean? Well, we, we have interludes in our music too, in modern worship music. Before we started All Hail King Jesus, right? Blake and I, Katie and Thomas, they were kind of playing and singing some other lyrics, okay? It happened at the end of the blessing too. We call them spontaneous moments in modern worship music. Um, we don't do that stuff because Bethel does it. We don't do it because Maverick City does it. We don't do it because I do it or I want to do it. We do it because, see, it's actually in the Bible. Okay, the Psalms are structured with prophetic spontaneous moments in them. And they were sung with spontaneous prophetic moments in them. Those Selah moments were not silent. They were prophetic, spontaneous moments of worship. So this idea that, and I, and, and I know some of you may feel uncomfortable when we do those types of things, and I love you very much, but that is not a modern idea. It is at least as old as David. Okay, so spontaneous worship has been around for a very long time, thousands of years. Okay, let's keep going. Psalm 33.3. Sing to him a new song. Does it say write him a new song, or does it say sing to him a new song? Prophetic worship, spontaneous moment, okay? What's the next line? Play, give me that word, one, two, three, play skillfully on the strings. So prophetic worship is now tied to playing skillfully with loud shouts. There's the loud worship again. For those of you that are trying to keep score, we can't seem to avoid this idea of loud worship. Just, it's not, it's just a freebie. It's not a part of the message at all, even though I've mentioned it twice. It's just part of the thing. <laughs> okay. So prophetic, spontaneous worship linked to playing skillfully, not horribly, skillfully. Okay, 1 Chronicles 23, 5. Now we're going to take some deep cuts, you guys. These are obscure passages that I honestly haven't really read before. There's a lot of names. We're going to skip a lot of that stuff. But there's some really cool stuff at the end of David's life. He is organizing the Levites for temple worship. Hey, and you know that David is not going to see the temple God already told him that. His son Solomon's going to build it, but David is still gathering resources. He's gathering the Levites, and he's setting all of these structures up for worship when the temple is built. Okay? First Chronicles 23.5 says that 4,000 Levites were assigned to offer praises to the Lord with instruments and singing. Okay? That's a lot of, that's a big band. It's a really big band. Loud worship. Okay? And they weren't playing guitars and stuff. They were playing like trumpets and cymbals, okay? Now, and they're in a stone courtyard. So even though there's no speakers and subs, I'm just telling you, 4,000 trumpets and cymbals, that's way louder than our worship's ever going to get here. I promise you that, okay? Way louder. Now, they didn't always use all 4,000 at the same time. One of the reasons why they wanted so many was so that they could have 24-7 worship every single day during the temple worship. So again, with all due respect to IHOP, um, I think Upper Room does some 24-7 stuff too. There's probably, there's many, many organizations do that type of stuff. And it's awesome that they're doing it. Not their idea. Okay? It's not a, this is not a modern idea. It was at least as old as the time of David. So let's, let's keep going. Chapter 25, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1, it says, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph, who wrote many psalms, 
and of Heman and of Jadathan. You'll see his name in the Psalms too. Who, okay, now, what did they do? They did not play their instruments. They prophesied with them. I didn't write it. It's in there. So, it turns out, they, they played those Selah moments. It's not my idea. At least as old as David, okay? Now, there's a few more names, and then we'll drop down to verse 7, okay? Chapter 25, verse 7. The number of them, along with their brothers, who were trained in singing to the Lord, all who were, one, two, three, Skillful, 288. Skillful worship, prophetic worship, spontaneous moments. It's been here forever. The two, these 288 chief musicians and singers were gifted in prophetic music, and they were also responsible for teaching the remaining 3,722. So when I read that, I'm like, man, yeah, teachers and students and leadership structure and organization, they have no internet, no planning center, no, no spreadsheets. They've got candlelight and parchment to keep track of all that stuff on. And I'm thinking, am I doing enough? Not to make it about me. This is just a moment of, you know, um, personal vulnerability. Am I doing enough? Am I leading the church in this direction when it comes to worship up here? I think so, but there's a lot of work to do, a lot more work to do. There's still songs to be written and generations to teach. I'm really trying to get more uh, involved with that. I need to become more skillful myself. I need to teach good musicians how to become chief musicians and then empower them to teach other, pe other people too. And, and I got to be honest, I'm addicted to this stuff. I'm, I'm going to do it till the day I die. I will never retire from this. I, will, I don't know if I'll always be on the stage, but... In some way, shape, or form, I'm going to carry on this legacy of Davidic worship until the day you put me in the ground. Okay? So, so prophetic worship. I hope by this point that it's starting its journey in your mind from like weird and modern, and I don't, I'm not sure about that. I hope it's starting to move towards very old and cool. Okay? <laughs> hope we've started to move in that direction, okay? Very old and cool and very powerful. But why, why, why bother? Why does it matter? Okay, back to the life of David. 1 Samuel 16, 13, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This is just after he's been anointed by Samuel as a boy. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It did not say the Spirit of the Lord tiptoed onto David. It didn't say that he passed through the town kind of on the outskirts and sort of got some spirit on David he rushed upon David from that day forward. So at that moment, David had all that he needed, all that he needed. That's it. And it was the impetus for everything that you would see him do throughout the rest of his life, including spiritual warfare. Yes, David the psalmist was actively engaged in spiritual warfare. That's why prophetic worship matters. Because you see at the end of his life, he's like, guys, we got to get this prophetic worship going. And here's why. I've learned that it's a primary weapon for spiritual warfare. And you might be saying, Phil, how do you know that? Let's go to the next verse, 1 Samuel 16, 14. We're going to do 14 through 17, and then we're going to drop down to 23. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. One verse. Verse 13, rushed upon David. 
Verse 14, departed from Saul. Things can happen very quick in the kingdom of God. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful. Imagine that. Playing the liar. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Wait, what? So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Saul, who was kind of a disaster as a king, didn't really follow the Lord very much. Even he and his advisors had apparently witnessed this prophetic worship moving things in the spiritual realm. This was a common thing. David was not the first one to do it. Because it was just, it was, it was, there was even, there was no doubt. Oh, there's a harmful spirit. They recognized it immediately, first of all, recognized it immediately and said, we got to get a musician here. We've seen this before. This is how we do it. Common. Verse 23, so David shows up, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand skillfully. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Slam dunk. Could not be more obvious than that. Here's another example. 2 Kings chapter 3. This is a really cool passage from the life of Elisha. There's a few kings that are sort of allied with the, there's three kings that are kind of allied themselves and they're going to go against another king in war and they've kind of stopped listening to God. They stopped listening to Elisha and Elisha's kind of like, I'm done with you. Knock yourselves out. And then Jehoshaphat, the one who kind of loved God and was sort of following him, was like, no, please. Please come prophesy for us. We want to feel good about our mistakes. <laughs> Sorry, that's not in there. I, that's not in there. So read chapter, 2 Kings chapter 3. Read the, whole, read the whole story when you get a chance. But verse 15 should absolutely explode in your, off the page. Because Elisha's like, fine. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, that is Elisha, and he prophesied. This happened all the time. So prophetic worship moves things in the spiritual realm, and you don't have to shout at the darkness to drive it out. Now, certainly not trying to minimize that. If, there's an, if there is a demonic spirit and you shout it out, call it out, we, we should be doing that. But what I'm saying is there are many other tools. Now, you, you can play an instrument prophetically and unlock something in the spiritual realm. We've just proven that twice. You can paint prophetically. Shout out to Alex Gray, my guy, I mean, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you saw that release painting. Let me tell you something. That released some things in the spiritual realm. Okay, and, and I'm, not, I'm not joking about this. Okay, some eternities were changed. I'm, literally, I'm not exaggerating. Some eternities were changed because he painted that word release prophetically. Okay, so prophetic worship that pushes back the darkness has many flavors. So David demonstrated skillful, prophetic playing of the harp and was able to drive out demons. But here's the best part. David actually wrote psalms specifically for this purpose. And in order to get there, we have to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. Now, I mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls quite extensively. I shouldn't say mentioned. I preached like an entire message about it. Um, in the Underground series. 
um, in a undisclosed bunker at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> so if you have questions about the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe go listen to that first. But if any, I'm going to do some very nerd. The rest of the message is mostly very nerdy stuff. And if, if it causes some tension, some confusion, some concern in you, please just come talk to me. Come find uh, Chris, Heather, Kip Heidi, anyone on the leadership team, the teaching team. We would love to talk to you about this. I could talk to you all day about it. I don't want you to be confused. Okay, I don't want you to be concerned. I'm, I promise you there's going to be some tension here. Let's wrestle with it. Let's just, let's just go, okay? So the Septuagint was the original translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And it was done by a group of Jewish scholars that lived in Alexandria, Egypt, sometime in the 2 to 300 BC. So really long time ago, way before Jesus, this is a very old text. And the largest fragments of this text were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. And if you remember, there was a bunch of jars in a cave and the scrolls were in the jars. Okay, this is very important. Now, if you're starting, and, and in that, in those scrolls, they found some, what I will call, extra psalms of David. We have 150 psalms in our Bible, and they found some more in 1947. Now, I realize I just said there's some stuff, really good stuff, biblical stuff, but it's not in our Bible. And some of you, especially those of you that have been in church for a long time, might be starting to, like, tense up and, like, oh, no, what's he doing? He's going to say something, H-word, H-word is going to happen, heresy. Okay, (laughs) guys, if that's you, let me just lovingly body check you a little bit. If that's you, I need you to go home, toss out the Furtick books, toss out the Bill Johnson books, get rid of Jenny Allen out of your life, Beth Moore, get them all out. Get me out. Okay, now, I don't want you to do that because I think that many of those modern leaders are inspired by the Holy Spirit and they actually write books that are helpful for your faith and can bring you closer to Jesus. Okay, but just because that sucker is new doesn't mean it's somehow, it's, it's not the same as this. So don't treat it like it's this. Okay, just because they found some old scrolls doesn't mean it's, and it, but it's not in here doesn't mean all of a sudden it's, it's heresy. Okay, my point is, there are modern texts that are not the Bible that are helpful, and there are super old texts that are not the Bible that are helpful. I'm not saying it's the Bible. I'm saying it's helpful. Okay, with that out of the way, another obscure passage, 1 Kings 4.32. This is talking about Solomon. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs are 1,005. The Septuagint says 3,000 Proverbs and 5,000 songs. Oh, no, the numbers are different. Okay, he wrote a bunch. That's the point. He wrote a bunch. Now, this is important because we don't get any numbers for David. Like, there isn't a similar passage for David in, the, in our Bible, but there is one in the Septuagint. It says this, and I'll have it, I'll, I'll have it up there on the screen. And the Lord gave him a discerning and enlightened spirit. Does anybody disagree with that? Okay. And he wrote 3,600 psalms, and all the songs he spoke were 446. And the songs for making music over the possessed, four. 
Yes, it says possessed. Okay, and the total was 4,050. All these he composed through prophecy, which was given him from before the Most High, which is the coolest name of God. Um, now, possessed isn't the best word here. If we were to translate it most literally, it would actually pro- we would probably use the word assaulted, as if by an external force. But it's clear that we're talking about demonic attacks here, because if any of you have had a demonic experience, it's probably less likely that you felt possessed by a demon and more like you were being assaulted by one, like especially like a weight on your chest or something like that, um, presence in a room, things like that. Okay, it doesn't possess, assaulted, demonic attacks. That's the point. There's four, David wrote four Psalms specifically for dealing with this stuff. And if we keep reading that same scroll where we find that passage with his scores, if you will, okay, we get a portion of a psalm that some scholars call Psalm 151. And it's one of these four. And it reads, part of it reads, I'll put it up on the screen. I mean, I won't, Andrew will, but let not Satan rule over me, nor an unclean spirit. Neither let pain nor the evil inclination take possession of my bones. Now that is like right on the nose, spiritual warfare, okay? Guys, these are considered, these four are considered exorcism psalms. I know, I know I just used the word exorcism in church, <laughs> okay? And I'm, and I'm not going to say sorry for it because that's just what it is. In fact, if we were to translate this, what these psalms, these types of psalms are called, if I was to translate it literally from Hebrew into English, I would actually not even say exorcism psalms. I would call them spells. And I realize I just said that in church, and you're like, what? It's not Harry Potter in here. Like, okay. <laughs> Guys, it's just, like, it's in there. It, that's what it is. Okay? Don't be so enlightened and so Western in your thinking that be like, oh, these people, they're just myth and magic and all sorts of stuff. Man, if you've ever had a demonic experience and you didn't have Jesus, you, even if you have Jesus, you start to think that that's magic stuff. That starts to feel and look like magic. Okay, so don't just, just calm down. It's, that's what it is. Okay, now, we found these four psalms for singing over the possessed in the same jar. Okay, and there was a fifth psalm in there. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, which is in our Bible. Now, in our modern Bible, it doesn't have an author. It just says Psalm 91. It starts getting right into the text. But in the Septuagint, it says of David. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time briefly talking about Psalm 91. So the, the guys that were storing these scrolls in that cave over a thousand years ago believed that David wrote this psalm and believed that it was so closely linked to those extra four that are specifically for spiritual warfare that they put him in the same jar. They didn't just randomly stuff him in there, guys. The odds of that happening are a billion to one. Psalm 91. Here we go. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, quick pause. we got to talk about the Most High. When the Israelites call God the Most High they are actually quite literally trying to steal the name of El, the father of the, all the Canaanite gods, including Baal. They're trying to steal, Baal, okay? They're trying to steal that name back from him. They don't just idly call him the most high. They're saying, no, no, El is not the most high. The father of Baal is not the most high. 
this one, Yahweh, is the most high. Most high is also important because it implies lesser but still very powerful spiritual beings, both demonic and angelic. Because if God was the only God that existed and everything else was just a figment of our imagination, just a myth, then why call him the most high? There's nothing else to compare him to. If, in fact, there are many gods and he happens to be the most high, it makes sense to call him the most high. Verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. Nothing will snatch them out of his hand. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Now, verse 5 and 6. My favorite part. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. That doesn't sound like much to us. But when you read the original Hebrew, there's a lot fewer words there. Terror of the night is not being afraid of the dark, because otherwise the English would be really kind of weird. You will not fear being afraid of the dark. No, 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 no. The terror of the night, that whole phrase in English is a single word in Hebrew, the word lili, which is actually quite literally the name of an Akkadian god. Lili was considered a demon that operated at night who tried to prevent couples from having children or would try to kill children in their sleep. What's going on in the Supreme Court right now is the culmination of something that started a really, really long time ago. If you don't think this stuff is real, I don't know what else to tell you. The arrow that flies by day, okay? That's not just, oh, I hope no one shoots me with an arrow today. No, that doesn't make much sense either. It's a demon that operates during the day. In Canaanite religion, you have the god Resheth, which is a bringer of plagues, and he's depicted as an archer shooting arrows. the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Pestilence. The Hebrew word is Deber. That's literally the name of another Canaanite god who brought pestilence. And destruction, the destruction that wastes at noonday. That Hebrew word is Keteb, also the name of a Canaanite god. So you have two verses, four demonic entities mentioned by name. And you would not know that if you just read the English. If you read the Hebrew, you would say, oh, wow, there's four gods listed there. And you might be saying, yeah, but. Listen, they were real enough for David for him to put it in there. They were real enough for David to put it in there. If it wasn't a problem, why bother? If they're just myths, why bother? Write something else. Don't waste space. Don't confuse anyone. 
This is not a joke. This is not a drill. This is war. Guys, there's so much more to this book than meets the eye. You just have to dig a little bit deeper. The Israelites believed for generations that David had power over demons, and they would point to these four extra psalms, or Psalm 91, or 1 Samuel 16. But this becomes very important when you look at his connection to Jesus. Because you can read the entire Old Testament and you will never see an example of a demon being cast out of anybody. Even the demon that was tormenting Saul. Okay, it left his presence. It wasn't within him. Okay, you will never see it in the Old Testament. Yet, Jesus shows up on the scene and immediately starts casting demons out of everybody. Thousands of demons out of everybody. And the people, even the common people that couldn't read, they saw that and they said, that's the Messiah. Well, wait a second. How would they know that? Why would they expect that of the Messiah if there isn't a single verse that they had ever heard in their lives that told them that's what the Messiah would do? David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they knew, they had heard this, they had read this. David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, had some power over demons. And Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David the promised one, the anointed one, the one who was going to show up and make everything right again. And if David had some power over demonic entities, then surely the son of David would have more power. Right? So when Jesus shows up and he's going around, he's casting out demons everywhere. They, the people saw that and immediately they said, that's the son of David because he's got more power than David had. So what does this mean for us? You may not be David the psalmist, author of 4,050 psalms, but you are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High. And with Holy Spirit by your side, there's work to be done. Everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. It's time to ask, Holy Spirit, how should I respond in this moment? How should I respond this week? What changes do I need to make in my daily routine in this next year? As you have no clue how your life will be viewed in light of history. David had no clue either. Will you be remembered in any way a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now? I don't know. But I'm going to wager that it's worth a shot. Not for your own fame, because you won't get to enjoy it anyway. David didn't. You won't either. You'll be gone. But for the impact it has on the kingdom and being a part of God's plan. You see, David has been in eternity for a long time now. He's been with Jesus for a long time. And he's got to he's been able to witness everything that has happened 
in human history since the day he died. Don't you think he's looking at all that has happened and thinks, yeah, yeah, it was worth it. Man, I've screwed up. I messed up so many times in front of so many people. People died because of my mistakes. I made such a mess of things and it hurt so bad. And my buddy, the prophets, they would come and they would tell me to turn back to you, God, and it hurt so bad. But every time I I, I turned and I had no idea that you were going to use my incredible mess and take all of human history, all your sons and daughters on this crazy journey. I had no idea. I was just trying to be a good king. I was just trying to worship you with everything that I had. you took that and you did all of this yeah it was worth it that's why we're going to chase the heart of David at this church worship, we're going to worship with everything that we have, not just because he's worthy and deserves our praise, but but also because we have a job to do. We have a war to fight. The, the same power and authority that spoke the universe into existence is available to you. The same power and authority that David had over the spiritual realm is available to you. whole of creation is constantly returning glory to the creator simply by existing but we are unique as his children created in his image the carriers peoria the carriers of his spirit to not only return glory to him because we will do that but also to push back the darkness using his power by his authority our worship is unique among all of creation because it can it can push back the darkness so right now, let, let's join in that song with all of creation and return glory to the only one that deserves it. And let's fight back against the enemy right now with worship as our weapon and with hearts turned towards heaven.